Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and woo, we've just been having some microphone adventures. I, I, I hope we're over the hump on that, but, uh, but here we are, ready to talk into them so that you can hear. Uh, and of course, we're going to be getting into some listener mail today. Uh, primarily, this first big part of the mailbag is going to be all responses to the episodes we've done on tears. And as such, uh, we, we're really concerned for the health of Carney the Mailbot today, because uh, we've all seen that Simpsons episode, and, and we know what happens when, when a robot learns to feel emotional pain. And there may be some sparking and melting. So we're trying to handle with kid gloves here. <laughs> yes. Tears are not good for, for gears, I guess. Uh, though we will have at least one listener mail about gears as well. All right. Robbie, mind if I do this first one from Catherine? Yeah. Catherine said, oh, you do mind. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, right yeah, in. go for it. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Catherine says, Hey guys, I've only listened to part one of your series on tears, but I had to share something that just happened to my son last week. My son is two years old and prone to nosebleeds. A few nights ago at 4am, he woke up with a particularly bad nosebleed. Usually he can clear them just by blowing his nose. So operating by only the light of his nightlight, I had him blow his nose into a tissue, assuming this would solve the problem. And then we'd be back to bed. Boy, was I wrong. Suddenly, there was blood all over his face, and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. I turned on the overhead light, cleaned up his face, and had him blow his nose again. Blood started welling up and pouring out of his right eye. I immediately took him back to our room, where I woke up my husband and showed him what was going on. Husband nearly passed out. However, he stayed with our son while I called the 24-hour nurse line at our pediatrician's office. Fortunately, we were able to get into the pediatrician's office the next morning. There I found out that it's not unheard of for blood to pool in the sinuses if you get a bad nosebleed while you're sleeping on your back, and if the bleed is severe enough, blood can also end up coming out of the eyes like tears of blood. Turns out it's nothing to be too alarmed by, although I challenge anyone to not be alarmed by a two-year-old bleeding from the eyes at 4 a.m. Hope y'all are staying well. Love the podcast, Catherine. Well, Catherine, that's a riveting email. I'm, I'm glad to hear your son's doing all right. But uh, but yeah, I can imagine that would be terrifying if you didn't know what was going on. Yeah, the sinuses of a child are, are strange and, and wondrous things. And they produce many miracles. <laughs> <laughs> all right, this one comes to us from Michelle. Hi, Robert and Joe. I just listened to the first part of the Tears episode and had a couple of observations. Joe talked about the different layers of tears. About 10 years ago, I had a bad case of pink eye. I work with kids, and this happens from time to time. But I wound up being allergic to the medication I was given to treat the infection. It resulted in eye inflammation so severe it changed the shape of my glasses prescription, and I developed chronic eyelid inflammation. For a long time, the lipid layer of my tears was causing my lacrimal glands to clog. I could get some of the water layer out, but it dried immediately. I'm still on eye drops and have to shampoo my eyelashes with baby shampoo from time to time. Not being able to cry was surprisingly painful. I couldn't go near the kitchen if anyone was cooking with onion or garlic and had to be careful about what I was watching on TV or what music I listened to because I am the kind of person who cries at sappy commercials and songs. My eyes are better now, though I'm not supposed to wear contacts again. The episode also made me think of my experience with my daughter. For the first month or so after she was placed with me, 
Uh, when she cried, I would think, you're hungry or you're tired, etc. When she was about six weeks old, she started crying with tears, and suddenly when she cried, it broke my heart, and I just wanted to make it better for her. I realized that up until then, she hadn't produced tears when she cried. Suddenly, I thought, you're sad, rather than attributing her tears immediately to something physical, even though the causes were still generally the same. I can see an evolutionary advantage in crying if those big eyes welling up with tears makes caregivers more attentive, particularly if it happens after they've reached a few weeks of exhaustion and sleep deprivation. Thank you for the much-needed mental stimulation while I have the itsy-bitsy spider on a loop in my head and for keeping me awake during the 2 a.m. feeds. Michelle. Well, thanks, Michelle. Uh, So I'm thinking about the first half of your email where you're talking about what happened with your eyes. This is interesting because it it contrasts with some of the other uh, tear duct cloggage we had been talking about. Now, in the episodes, we talked about cloggage of like um, the puncta or the the tear ducts where the tears would actually drain away from the eyes. So those are toward the inside of the eye and they're what allows the liquid from the surface of the eye to drain off into the nasal cavity. And of course, if those become clogged or, or blocked in some way, that can result in tears welling up and overflowing from the eyes. But I think if I understand right, what you're saying is that you had clogging of the ducts leading from the lacrimal gland to the eye. So you would have uh, like a, a tear reflex response or an emotional tear response. And the gland would want to be secreting tears, but the tears basically couldn't get out of the gland onto your eye. Is that, did you read that the same way, Rob? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I took, took them to mean. Yeah. So that sounds frustrating in a totally different way. Now, speaking of, um, of, of strange tears and tear issues and, um, the, and bloody tears, uh, we, we should probably, uh, I imagine a number of people probably thought back to that, uh, the James Bond film, Casino Royale, in which the villain uh, has a condition that causes him to shed tears of blood, which, uh, which of course was just a, a choice they made because it looks cool and it's a, you know, an effect and this kind of like mildly weird thing you can do with your villain during a time period of the Bond franchise where they really didn't want to get too weird with things. But I was just <laughs> thinking, what if they had, what if it had been something less cool? Like what if he just had kind of dry eyes and he just was having to constantly put eye drops in? So, mm-hmm. so like Bond's trying to talk with him and they're having to, trying to have some serious conversation and he's just, uh, you know, he's back there putting eye drops in. I don't know. I just like the mental. I like the the idea of Mads doing that in a scene. That's very good. But I I also like the idea of a villain with just a constantly runny nose. So (laughs) absolutely pure evil, but he's just like wiping with the tissue and he's sniffling. Huh. Yeah. Has that ever been? Surely we've had some villains that are like that. Wasn't there a Dick Tracy villain like Sneezy or something? Well, the Dick Tracy villains are the opposite of what you're talking about with not wanting to get too weird with the villain because they're all like impossible. They've all got like, mm-hmm. you know, a face on the back of their head or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've said it before. It's I'd called like... backface. <laughs> backface. <laughs> I think I've said it before, but I, I would I would love if someone revisited that, but really leaned into the mutation. The idea that that criminal enterprise causes like just grotesque changes to the body. You heard about the new boss that's muscling in on our territory? He's called Hand Face. He's got a hand for a face. I can picture it in my head. I can imagine it working. Armpit Face. Okay, okay. <laughs> we, we've got enough. All right. This next message about tears comes from Joe, uh, not me, from another Joe. And this ties into stuff we were talking about, about um, 
about non-spontaneous tears, actors being able to cry and other, other people who are able to cry on command or cry in a performative way. So Joe says, Dear Robin Joe, thanks for your excellent episode on tears. It was really fun, aside from the occasional itch-inducing awareness that I am constantly lubricating these spheres of vitreous fluid in my face. Well, you know what they say in the pod business, if, if you're making them itch, you're doing it right. Um, <laughs> uh, Joe goes on. Although I am decades removed from my time pursuing acting as a craft, I wanted to share my learned perspective on crying on cue, a skill actors often develop to a greater or lesser degree. Each actor's approach is different, although I'd say they fall into two main categories. First, emotionally cued crying. When an actor wants to cry, he or she sometimes chooses to talk themselves into it by remembering a tragic event in their life or even saying hurtful things to themselves in their heads. This is not a healthy approach and loses effectiveness over time as you numb yourself to tragedy or self-abuse. Oh, that does sound awful. Like, I don't want to think about my favorite actors being mean to themselves in order to produce that, that really heart-wrenching scene. I don't know why this is where my brain went, but I'm just imagining the internal monologue of Christopher Lee going, you oaf, you buffoon. <laughs> is is that your internal critical voice, Christopher Lee? Well, no, I mean, I was imagining him saying that to himself to make himself Oh, well, fun, I thought but... you meant it like that because... Oh maybe... my God, but if Christopher Lee told me I was a buffoon, yeah, that would that would sting. I wonder if it would make it better, like if, if we if we made, if we could somehow change the, the tuning on our critical uh, voices in our head and make them be the voices of, say, Christopher Lee. I wonder if, I don't know, like a, a suitably villainous figure. And then you'd be like, oh, well, that's that's the devil talking to me. That's 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 negative self-talk. That's that's bad stuff. I don't need to listen to that. You clod, you fool. Be like, shut up, Dracula. I'm not going <laughs> to listen to your crap. Okay, uh, Joe goes on. Number two, sense memory physiological crying. When an actor wants to cry, he or she can engage and relax their facial muscles in a way that cues tears to well up. This is slightly different for each individual, but usually involves relaxing the muscles at the base of the jaw and tongue, letting your chin quiver, and taking deep, shuddering breaths, focusing on relaxing the diaphragm and allowing your lungs to expand downwards towards your sacrum, and then expelling every last molecule of air you can as you breathe out. With a little practice, it takes one breath to get your eyes to well up, and two or three to get tears to spill down your cheeks. Even though it's been years since I used the skill, the sense memory approach is reliable. I was able to shed a few tears while frying an egg this morning <laughs> using the technique. It's also much safer for the performer's psychological health. Uh, the text and story can also really help an actor cry. Shakespeare has some amazing moments where he guides the actor into the vocal and breath space they need to find the emotion. A great example is from Romeo and Juliet. As Romeo is mourning his supposedly fallen love, preparing to take his own life, he says, Eyes look your last, arms take your last embrace, and lips owe you. The doors of breath seal with a righteous kiss, a dateless bargain with engrossing death. Note that unlike almost every other line in this play, and lips OU, that was a whole line unto itself, has just four syllables. The actor is meant to draw that O out as a moan over seven long beats. It's a perfect physiological cue to get the waterworks going. In that moment, cradling your love in your arms, crying out O oh, until your breath runs out, it's harder not to cry, honestly. 
excellent theatrical writing like this hands the actor everything they need to nail the moment. Thanks, as always, for the great episodes and taking me back to my halcyon days as an eponymous protagonist. Looking forward to part two, Joe. Huh. Well, that's interesting, especially the bit, the second bit, about sort of relaxing your face and uh, allowing tears to come out that way. I mean, that that actually... Uh, th- that probably contradicts some of the things I said towards the end of episode three, where, where I'm saying, Hey, if somebody's, if somebody's t- crying, then you need to, uh, you know, acknowledge some sort of emotional uh, mechanism going on underneath there. Uh, but what we've, we've heard here from, uh, actor Joe, uh, you know, you could certainly have a situation where at least a trained actor or a, or a trained, uh, deceiver, uh, could utilize this uh, self-relaxation technique. Well, the the funny thing is, I wonder if the the feedback mechanism could go the other way as well, though. That's true. Because, I mean, we've talked about, the, uh, this is something that's still somewhat controversial in biology, but there are things such as the, the facial feedback hypothesis, like the idea that not only are our facial expressions determined by our underlying emotions, but in a way, they also determine the emotions themselves. So it sort of goes both ways, like the processes feed back into each other. Um, and so that could be possible with something like tears. Maybe if you just use a sort of like sense tear trigger mechanism in the body that's not initially emotional, I wonder if you could do that without it in some way summoning emotions as a result of you doing it. That's, yeah, that's true, especially given the acting, well, any of these techniques, if it, if, be it acting or, say, being a paid mourner at a funeral, n- in neither of these situations is the crying just happening in a void or, you know, in, or, or in a vacuum. Uh, both of these are going to be accompanied by either a situation uh, that provokes sadness or, you know, emotion or it's going to be a scene in a play or whatnot that it's going to uh, summon some sort of an emotional state. So, yeah, it, it's interesting to think about. All right, this next one comes to us from one of our mini gems. Uh, <laughs> we do have, a, we have at least a handful of gems. A legion, a legion of gems. Yeah. Uh, this gem... Uh, Who's just Jim? I was just checking to see if this Jim had this is any. Not like, Jim in New Jersey. Jim yeah. this or Jim that, but no, this is just Jim. Jims out there, feel free to give yourself a, an additional moniker if you like. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Jim, Jim has, of Arimathea. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, you can be you know like classy Jim or jazzy Jim. There's so many possibilities. Um, this Jim is writing in with two thoughts on the nature of tears and Dune. Of course, this instantly got our attention. If you mm-hmm. write in and you connect something we've been talking about to Dune, we're, you know, we're going to be there. Uh, Jim writes the following. It was very interesting to hear how there are several different layers that lubricate our eyes and produce tears. In Dune, on Arrakis, the Fremen do everything they can to minimize water loss from their bodies. One thing they seem less concerned about is moisture lost from the eyes. Is it possible that one of the side effects of spice is that the spice alters some of the layers that lubricate the eyes so that there would be less moisture lost from the eyes than normal human eyes? And because of that, turns the eyes blue? Just a thought. Number two. Also, you may recall from Dune, when Paul and Jessica first arrive at the siege, Paul engaged in ritual combat with a Fremen named Jamis, who Paul killed. Paul later shed a tear for Jamis, which the Fremen called, gave water to the dead. Keep up the great work, Jim. 
This this is a wonderful point. Always love bringing things back to Dune. And yeah, this is interesting. So uh, I don't recall this ever being addressed in the book, even like in the supplementary uh, writings by Dr. Kynes and all that, that sort of Mm. explain more about the ecology of the desert on Arrakis and things. Uh, But that would make sense. I I can imagine in this fictional world, maybe consuming the spice uh, like beefs up the lipid layer on the outside of your eyes and, and additionally prevents evaporation of the, of the aqueous liquid in the tear film. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, certainly it it would seem to, seems like one of the, effects of the of the spice in addition to its other named effects would be this sense of concentration and concentration is often linked with sight so uh you know who who knows exactly but uh, i was thinking about this and uh, i suppose one of the big issues here is that the eyes of the fremen still have to remain free of dust and sand particles on what is again a desert planet mm-hmm. and therefore to some extent uh the tears must flow <laughs> So I was looking around just a little bit on this. I, I didn't have a lot of time to just really go in depth, um, though, though, I was, though I was quite quite interested. But I was looking at papers on the eyes of desert rodents, mm. uh, thinking, well, perhaps there's something there. Though they wouldn't be a, a, you know, a one-to-one because a desert rodent is something that has evolved over time to thrive. And I'm, I'm not sure if you could really make the same case for uh, you know, technology using uh, sort of post-humans on, a, on some sort of a desert world. Um, mm. But uh, so far, it seems that there's nothing unusual in the morphological aspect of this, uh, in particular, paper I was looking at. I was looking at a desert gerbil. So there was nothing particularly different in its orbital glands. Um, But on the other hand, I'm thinking maybe a cultural aversion to emotional tears, like we see with the Fremen, uh, Mm. plus some sort of uh, pharmacological intervention via the spice. And then if you're wearing goggles anyway, when you're out in the desert, Mm -hmm. then then maybe the the hypothesis works. Oh, yeah, I can see that. But though I would wonder um, if uh, some desert-dwelling animals that might be dealing with a lot of dust and sand and other irritants getting into the eyes might deal with that in ways other than having excesses of uh, of tears in their eyes and might deal with it, for example, by having a nictitating midbrain, like the third eyelid. Yeah, the third uh, eyelid would, yeah. would certainly be key. I mean, that that's what we see with something like the elephant. Uh, yeah. We also see that in various other creatures that need to, say, you know, shield their eye during feeding and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, I, I do not believe the Fremen. Uh, I, I think I feel like Herbert would have told us that had the Fremen featured a third eyelids. Oh, that would be really good. Mm-hmm. That's how you can tell the Gola form from the original. The Gola has the dictating <laughs> membrane. But I'll consider it an open question. I'm going to have to think on this one a little bit more. Maybe we'll come back to it. All right. So I guess today's episode is mostly reactions to tears, though we've got a number of other great emails. Uh, we got several in response to our episode about gears in biology, uh, talking about a, a fictional creature from a, a set of books that I love. And so I'm going to read this message from Michael. Michael says, hi, Rob and Joe. Although it ended up being a short intro to the discussion, when you spoke about wheels and their lack of a presence in the natural world, all I could think about was the creatures in the third book of the His Dark Materials series by Philip Pullman. As a side, these are my favorite books of all time. I read them when they were very first published when I was a kid, and I've reread them several times. The movie wasn't all that great, but I still appreciated it more than most, and now I'm very happy that HBO has done a great job making a series out of it. 
I don't think these creatures have appeared yet, but I don't watch the show directly on HBO, so maybe others have heard of them already. Anyway, the creatures I wanted to tell you about are called the Mulefa, and they are the sentient species in one of the particular worlds that the books center on. In this world, all of the creatures have a diamond-shaped body structure, so they have two legs side by side with another in the front and one in the back. The Mulefa also have co-evolved with a tree species of this world, which produces very hard and nearly perfect round seeds. These seeds have a hole down the center, which the Mulefa are able to stick their front and back feet through basically becoming wheels. They then propel themselves using their two side legs, almost like living bicycles. I'm sure I don't paint the most descriptive picture of these creatures, but these books are a thousand percent worth a read. HBO does a good job of it. I really hope seeing this incredibly imagined creature on the screen is something we do get to experience. Can't speak enough praise for these books, but I'm so happy to share this interesting creature with you in relation to the recent episode. Thank you both for all you do. Michael. Um, well, Michael, I can certainly relate to the, to the gushing about Philip Pullman. Yeah. I, I, I love those books as well. Really, really wonderful reads. Uh, I, I have not been able to bring myself to watch the series on TV, not necessarily as a commentary on it. Uh, I just sort of, I guess I just sort of like feared I wouldn't like it and thus never ventured there. But, uh, but yeah, the books are magical. Just, just great. Well, I have not, I have not read them. I think I started reading them, um, years ago and I just I didn't get sucked into him at the time and mm-hmm. it was just you know not not the book for for that time for whatever reason. Uh I did not watch the movie but I did watch the first season of the TV show and I I thought it was was pretty fun. Uh Lynn Manuel Miranda was a, was a lot of fun in it. I like the polar bears. <laughs> and I've looked up this uh, Mulefa creature M U L E F A and it's turned up some fan art of these creatures and they're kind of like uh kind of like skinny snuffleupagus motorcycles. And uh, yeah, it looks pretty cool. I like it. It's very inventive. Yeah, there's a wonderful section in the third book in the series where a uh, scientist from Earth finds herself transported to this sort of other dimension. And she ends up like sort of uh, becoming an anthropologist of these creatures. And and it's really interesting, like her working out how the whole biological history of this world has happened. Are they intelligent? Do they have like a culture? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got a whole culture and language and everything. Yeah, it's really interesting. Huh. But maybe we should wrap up just by doing uh, a message or two about Weird House Cinema. Let's do it. All right, this one comes to us from Mike. Hey, Robin Joe. I love your Weird House episodes, and I am surprised that you have not covered Johnny Mnemonic. When, uh, back when you covered Free Jack, <laughs> I figured Johnny Mnemonic could not be far behind. But alas, nothing yet. I would love to hear you guys discuss this film in all its glory. I mean, you can't go wrong with a stellar cast like Keanu Reeves, Dolph Lundgren, Henry Rollins, and of course, Ice-T. Not to mention a talking dolphin, cyberpunk at its finest. I think this would be especially timely with the new Matrix coming out in a few months. On a side note, when I went to see the first Matrix film in theaters, I was a little worried that it would be another Johnny Mnemonic, which came out just a few years prior. I could go on, but I know you guys are busy. Uh, (laughs) Love the podcast. Mike. I don't know why that seems so funny. I guess we are busy, but it seems like a funny comment to make. Well, thank you, Mike. Um... 
Well, there are several things to unwrap here. I guess on one level, sometimes when we watch a film of a particular genre or flavor, um, you know, that we're pretty filled up on that flavor for the time being. And so we, we, we didn't long for something different. And uh, so I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to more cyberpunk or cyberpunk-esque material. And maybe it'll be, uh, be this film, but, uh, but I don't know. I've never actually seen it, but certainly if you just look at it on paper, it does have a lot of, uh, a lot of items that line up with our interests. I enjoyed that first sentence where you said you're surprised we haven't covered covered Johnny Mnemonic. Like I, when I first read that, I definitely interpreted it as shocked and appalled, like you're <laughs> mad. Okay, one last message about Weird House Cinema. This comes from Hugh. This is becoming a genre of message. Subject line: Bombadil. <laughs> Entirety of the message reads: Stephen Root equals Tom Bombadil. That is mm. all. Thank you for all your great shows, Hugh. Mm, okay, yeah, I, okay. I do love Stephen Root. I mean, he's oh, a yeah. national treasure. Absolutely, from from King of the Hill to Barry, I uh, I, I celebrate his entire catalog. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he would obviously obviously he would be a different. A pro- I mean, I don't know. Maybe he could do the whole thing with kind of a British flair, but I, I'm imagining him very much in keeping with, say, his role in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. I'm imagining a very sort of southern. Um, hayseed take on Tom mm-hmm. Bombadil, which I think could work. You know, he's Tom sure. Bombadil is a son of the soil. But uh, on the other hand, I know they typically want to go for more of a, a British feel with these uh, these film adaptations. That's it. Well, why does Brit- yeah, I mean, I'm fine with British accents in, in uh, fantasy, but why does it always have to be British accents in fantasy? Why not a Texas accent in fantasy? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, that that reminds me on on the Facebook group for our show, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. Someone also brought up Nick Offerman as a potential Bombadil. <laughs> That's strange. Yeah, but I don't know. I could see it. Well, I don't know. I don't know if Tom, if if Nick Offerman has the pipes to uh, to really sing the, the role and bring the song to life musically. But when I start thinking about... I'm, my son and I are listening to the part now where they're having the big council talk about what to do with the ring. And they're mm. discussing, well, maybe we could give it to Bombadil. And they're like, well, again, I was like, well, you could give it to Bombadil, but he doesn't actually have any power over it. It just doesn't have power over him. He'd probably get bored with it or lose it. And at the very least, you'd reach this point, like at the end of time, where it's just like the global forces of Mordor surrounding the the last forest in which Bombadil is is hanging out and singing and has you know lost the ring somewhere and oh, okay. uh, and in that scenario I don't know it could, I can imagine like a tough Nick Offerman Bombadil making a last stand against the, the forces of darkness <laughs> that's funny uh, yeah okay I was I was trying to remember what the reason was he gave yeah it seemed to, it, my read on it was that Gandalf was saying that Bombadil wouldn't necessarily lose the ring to Mordor, but he also wouldn't really actively defend either. He would just sort of, it would be like just taking a crucial piece of the game off the table and now you just can't really play. Yeah. But I, I always like that part of the book because it's there's a lot of like what if there's a lot yeah. of uh, st- you know, strategic planning and and it and it creates these sort of alternate scenarios in your mind like what if they had tried to just hide the ring indefinitely what yeah. if they had uh, somehow transported it to Bombadil or tried to transport it to Bombadil or something else didn't work and they just had to fall back on that plan uh, what if we gave the ring to the Sackville Torbenses <laughs> yeah yeah there's so many possibilities. Bilbo's like, you've been trying to get my inheritance. Here you go. Here it is. (laughs) It's your job now. 
And yes, I am aware that I said Torpins instead of Baggins. It's just sometimes it's Torpins for me now. Oh yes, you've been you've been you've been tainted by uh, the keepers. I've been propagandized. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I mean, it's fitting we're talking about this because this is uh, this is Hobbit week. Uh, this is the week of, uh, of Bilbo and Frodo's birthday. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, and we're actually going to have a, a Lord of the Rings related uh, artifact slash uh, monster fact episode this Wednesday. Oh, nice. So tune in for that. Uh, Also tune in for our core episodes on Tuesday and Thursday. And this Friday, yes, it will be another Weird House Cinema. Then there'll be a rerun over the weekend and we'll be back with another listener mail on the other side. So, hey, write in. Let us know. Do you have thoughts about Bombadil? about uh, recent episodes, about older episodes, about possible future episodes, well, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find the show wherever you get your podcasts in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.